This week on The Fulbright Project. Good evening. The four-day insurrection at New York's Attica State Prison came to a tragic end this morning. Negotiations gave way to force, making this the bloodiest prison incident the country has seen in four decades. In the final hours of the revolt, led primarily by blacks, the inmates murdered nine of their white hostages. 28 convicts were killed by state troopers and sheriff's deputies who regained control of the prison. Officials at the prison said eight of the hostages had had their throats cut. But today, the Monroe County Medical Examiner, having looked at the bodies, said no throats were cut at all. The medical examiner says the hostages were apparently killed by large caliber ammunition and shotgun blasts from a distance, which immediately raised the possibility that some of the hostages may, in fact, have been shot down by the lawmen who broke in to rescue them. Fulbright Project. This is Dan Elkin, and on this week's episode, I'm joined by absolutely no one. That's right. It's just me. It's a solo episode. I have full control of the content. And you're thinking, all right, I'm going to turn this off. I don't have time for this. I hope you don't. Uh, My apologies. Alex just got back from South Africa. Michael just completed a fellowship in Washington, D.C. So they're a little jet lagged. So I just say, you know what, guys? I got this. I got this. So what I'm hoping to do today, a little bit experimental. I'm hoping to do a book review. That's right. A book review. Grad students the world over grown. But it should be a little bit more fun than a book review because it's a podcast, right? So, more than a review, I guess we could say it's a summary, and I think I picked out a great book to kind of kick off our book review series with, and that book, one that I've wanted to get to for a while, as an aside, historians in the summer always have this massive pile of books that they want to get to, you know, some of them just for fun, but some of them might have to do with their research, but for me, it's just just really wanted to get to Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water. The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. This book has received a lot of a critical acclaim. Uh, it won the Bancroft Award, which is essentially the highest honor uh, historians bestow upon a work of history. It also, uh, Heather Ann Thompson herself, is a recent recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. So lots of critical acclaim. Uh, I have seen uh, Heather Ann Thompson speak at a conference and I thought she was absolutely inspiring, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant grasp of the history of the criminal justice system. And so this is uh, very evident in this book that it took her over a decade to write. It's extremely well-researched. Uh, everything is extremely well-sourced. So let's go ahead and begin with a little bit of a summary of the book. Obviously, what's it about? about the Attica prison riot of 1971, which is one of these events that, speaking personally, it's something that I had heard of, right? If you say, oh, well, you know, the Attica prison riot, I'm like, oh, I generally know what you're talking about. But it's absolutely, it's actually not something um, that I knew a lot about. If you had quizzed me on specifics of what happened, I would not have known uh, much of anything, really. 
And so this book was extremely enlightening. Uh, I really walked away from this book feeling like I have a grasp of the events and a grasp of the different perspectives and the legacy, um, which again, I think is what she had set out to do. First of all, it's essentially a narrative history. Uh, it progresses chronologically. It starts, really kind of starts 1971 uh, with the preconditions for the uprising. Then it covers the uprising, the retaking of the prison by armed uh, police officers. And then uh, that's really the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is really the legal cases uh, that, that would emanate from this. Um, and their kind of long, decades-long history going into the 90s and kind of reaching culmination in the year 2000. But we begin, really, in 1971. Again, Attica Prison, maximum security prison, upstate New York. And what you have is a situation in which the new kind of tough-on-crime policies that you begin to start to see uh, in 1970s. Again, thinking of the larger context, a larger context that Heather Ann Thompson provides, which is that you have Richard Nixon, you have the war on drugs, right? Something that we know uh, was orchestrated, at least in the in the words of his own aides, to destabilize uh, black communities, right? It was really the main kind of political purpose of this. Uh, and so you know, right, that you have that going on. And so a lot of the prisoners that are being fed into this system are people with minor parole violations or are in prison for uh, drug-related reasons. And the result of this, of this, of these tough-on-crime policies that, again, weren't even necessarily really uh, conservative. I mean, I think she kind of points out that you have liberal Democrats that are starting to realize that the tough-on-crime uh, formula is an easy way to get elected because, again, you've got to remember this is kind of this pushback to the civil rights movement, this criminalization of African-American and African-American communities. So it's just kind of an easy softball issue for politicians of all political stripes. New York in particular has Nelson Rockefeller as governor, who plays a very kind of prominent role in our story. Uh, and he, uh, a liberal Republican, so he kind of has to make sure to kind of shore up his credentials a little bit with a tough on crime policy. So you have an overcrowding situation happening in these New York prisons. Tension begins in New York City jails. There's some uprisings there, uh, but it's also happening elsewhere. I mean, even Attica, before the actual uprising, uh, there was a strike because these uh, these men were, were tired of being exploited in terms of labor, um, essentially slave labor. Uh, but really, Attica specifically has some of its own issues, which is that Attica, the prison, is old, dilapidated. You really get a sense that the infrastructure of the prison is not very functional. And so the conditions for these prisoners are terrible, the living conditions. Everything is underfunded, so you don't have adequate health facilities, so you have a lot of health issues that are going untreated in this prison population. You also have a lack of opportunities for rehabilitation. Uh, there's not a lot of job training or anything that'll put these men in a position to better themselves so that way when they get out of prison, they're not coming back, right? And they realize this. That's not something that's above them. I mean, they're fully cognizant of all of these issues the prisoners are. And there's another layer to this, again, that, that Thompson provides us, which is 
you also have to realize 1971, this is right after all the social movements of the 60s, which are still kind of continuing into this era. And so these prisoners have a kind of awareness, a political awareness that you maybe wouldn't have seen at other times. So these men are heavily influenced by the black, uh, black, black nationalism, Black Panthers, uh, various other political movements that show that try to make a, a systemic critique. You know, this isn't about them and their individual choices. They realize this is so much more than that. This is about a larger system, a larger system that they know is tied to the United States and its racial history, right? So there is awareness. Um, and there is, because of that, there is a kind of more joint kind of communal response to some of these problems. And these prisoners seek to get reforms through official channels. They try to organize, uh, again, go on strike, um, do different things to try and get some of these issues addressed. But for the most part, they're kind of hitting, uh, hitting a wall. There's not a lot of reforms being implemented to try and make the situation better. So to recap, the prison is old, the infrastructure is bad, so living conditions are terrible, inadequate resources for health, inadequate resources for rehabilitation, labor exploitation. But that's really just the tip of the iceberg. There's also a lot of physical abuse happening within these prisons and rampant racial discrimination, right? So this is a really kind of nasty situation by 1971. So that's the prisoners. And that's their perspective. Now, one of the strengths of this book is that Heather Ann Thompson kind of takes you around and gives you a view of the different perspectives. So, okay, we have the prisoners, we understand what's motivating them, what's going on with them, how they're viewing the situation. But she also is very good about covering what the correction officers are thinking. And the correction officers are predominantly white. A lot of them come from rural New York, some of them from the town of Attica, because this is uh, the best paying job around. Go be a prison guard, right? So that's why a lot of these correction officers are coming from uh, is that, you know, this is, is, is an opportunity for them. These are family men. They're trying to raise their families. This is a good paycheck. And the thing that's interesting is they too know that this prison and its conditions are not acceptable. They know that this prison's infrastructure uh, is rotting around them. They realize that they're not safe conditions for them to go to work. They realize the tensions and the pressures from overcrowding and this tough on crime stance, right? They can sense that there's this building that's happening to the point where a lot of them are hesitant to even go into work because they realize like we're hitting the point where something's going to happen. But even their attempts at saying, hey, you know, hey, there's a problem here, uh, are, are met with deaf ears. Um, again, and this is kind of a third group that I think is a little bit separate is the leadership of the prison who, yeah, you know, has a mix of, of the kind of hardliners and some of the well-meaning types that, you know, want to input reforms but really are kind of clueless or oblivious uh, to the kind of depths of the problem. So you have the guys on the ground, which are, again, prisoners, correction officers, they know where this is headed. Uh, but then you have kind of an oblivious leadership, um, which I think is a recipe uh, for disaster, and disaster is exactly what happens. By September of 71, the prisoners had been extremely active trying to get reforms, as I mentioned. 
going through the official channels, not really receiving anything. And you get the sense of this, this, the forlornness of it, you know, this idea that they're not, the changes are not going to happen. And so prisoners really start to kind of push back in small ways. Um, they start to talk back. They start to uh, not heed the directions of the corrections officers, you know, minor things here and there, but it starts to kind of build. Uh, and you can sense, you get the sense of that pressure you know, building up. And this is the kind of little steam outlets uh, taking place. And one of the things that leads to the uprising is that, you know, I forget the particulars, but something to the effect that a prisoner um, opens up a cell door that he wasn't supposed to open up um, for another prisoner. And so this, of course, is a huge security concern. And it's really the kind of cracking back on that, cracking down on that, the reprisals from that, that ends up leading to uh, uh, an outbreak of violence in the A tunnel. Um, the A tunnel is one of four tunnels that facilitates prisoner movement uh, through the prison. What starts out as just kind of a violent uh, interaction between prisoners and guards ends up essentially exploding into the larger uprising. Right? So all of this pressure finally hits, hits the breaking point. Now again, what's interesting is correction officers for the most part are unable to prevent the uprising because of the prison. Because the prison is infrastructure is so bad. It's such an old, terrible prison. That's really what you kind of get from this. Uh, you know, first of all, one of the gates, I think, had needed some welding done or something. It never got done, of course, because everything's underfunded. So the gate just collapses under the pressure of, under, uh, the pressure of the prisoners. So this thing that's supposed to kind of contain them to this one area that falls apart so now the, the, the uprising is, is spreading to other areas in the guard tower uh, in the center of the yard they're trying to to call use the phone to let other guards know that they need to come other corrections officers but the phone system's jammed because you can only have one line uh, operating at a time right so it's almost you know, if it wasn't so tragic, it's kind of almost comical, the inability of, for them to control the situation because of this, this prison uh, situation. And with this prison uprising is everything that you would expect with a prison uprising. It's an orgy of violence, at least initially, in which prisoners are looking to get their revenge on guards that had beat on them for years. They were also looking to get their revenge on other prisoners to fulfill old grudges, so to speak. Uh, also, these prisoners are running into the kitchens and to the hospitals looking to score extra food and provisions or perhaps drugs. I mean, it's everything that I think your imagination would fulfill if you think prison riot, right? That is happening initially. But what I think is very kind of interesting is, yes, the violence is, is extremely heated at the beginning, Right, uh, corrections officers are beaten one so badly that he's going to uh, die from his wounds. Many corrections officers are taken hostage. But what's interesting is that the prisoners really start to organize themselves. They had not planned to do this uprising; it just kind of happened organically, and then it just grew. Uh, you had, I think, roughly about 1,500 prisoners involved by the time it was said and done. They're able to take over a portion of the prison, specifically uh, D Yard, which is, um, you know, an outside portion of the prison is kind of where they end up kind of congregating. And what they do is they start to kind of organize. They realize, okay, this has happened and it's going to get really bad if we don't organize and try and 
get something out of this. And so they have hostages, the correction officer hostages that they have taken, and they organize a system to protect them, to kind of put up a wall around them of, of, of people so that way they're not going to be harmed because they realize that they need those correction officers as bargaining chips to hopefully bring this uprising that has now occurred, that has now been successful, they've successfully taken over a portion of the prison, to bring this to an end that doesn't lead in their deaths, right? Or doesn't lead in some kind of violent reprisals. So they immediately organize, they vote for leaders, they create kind of a democratic leadership structure, and they look out to the prison to try and find negotiating partners. And so the prison brings in uh, people from uh, really all over the country to create a kind of negotiating team to go in and negotiate with these prisoners who have taken over this prison or portions of the prison. And this is really interesting is uh, Thompson does a very good job of showing the kind of tensions inherent in this negotiating process because there is a two to three day back and forth between the prisoners and the negotiators, an attempt to try and uh, find a middle ground, a middle ground that isn't going to be violence. And the prisoners have demands. And I think those demands can be kind of roughly divided into two categories. Most importantly is they want prison reforms. They want um, better conditions, more chances for rehabilitation, or at least more services for rehabilitation, uh, and also less censorship, an ability to, for them to educate themselves and be politically active within the prison. Uh, right? These are their kind of reform requests. The second category is that they also want amnesty for what happened with the riot. The prisoner's logic being, look, these conditions were terrible. We were suffering innumerable abuses for years. We tried to go through the official channels to get reform. We were continually met with inaction. And so, of course, this was going to happen. This was an inevitable result of the inaction of the state. And so we should not be held legally responsible for what occurred during this riot. And this becomes the kind of sticking point between the state and its negotiators and the prisoners, is this question of amnesty, more so than the reforms. Uh, reforms generally are kind of agreed to, but the sticking point becomes this issue of amnesty, especially because one of the correction officers uh, that was involved in the violence had died, right? Beaten so badly that he, uh, he died. So that heightened the stakes, right? Because now you have all of these prisoners who believe that they are going to probably be held responsible uh, for that death, you know, so a murder charge added to all of their rap sheets, something that they don't want. Um, and, but on the other end, you also now have the justice system seeking reprimands for the death of a corrections officer. Uh, so you can see why this became an impasse. Um, and there were some half promises about maybe some forms of amnesty or at least, uh, you know, safety from reprisals and all of these things. But again, and this is where I think the book does a really good job of showing like, if you're these prisoners, you don't know who to trust. You know, you're getting these letters from a judge or you're getting these letters from this other person saying, oh yeah, you know, you won't face uh, uh, charges for this or this or that. And you can understand like these prisoners, you know, this is 
they don't have a lot of access to information here. They're a little bit isolated. So they don't know who to trust. They don't know who to trust. And that tension is always there. But you can see they really want resolution. What also is interesting is there's almost a camaraderie that develops between the prisoners and their hostages. Because those hostages realize pretty soon into it that these prisoners do not want to hurt them. That these prisoners really just want this situation to be normalized, to end without violence. And so they almost see themselves, I think, in common cause a little bit, right? Like, we all just want this to kind of end calmly. We all just want to go home. Uh, you know, for the hostages, go home. Prisoners go back to normal, just with some reforms and hopefully kind of no am an amnesty for what had occurred. But... It's what's happening for those that are on the outside of this process that I think is very interesting. Because you have all of the corrections officers that weren't captured, right, that, that uh, were in the other parts of the prison, and they take this very personally, that this happened, that one of their comrades was killed, that, the, uh, that their other colleagues are now being held hostage, taking it very personally. And you also have the New York State Police that shows up and the National Guard. And for the New York State Police and the corrections officers, again, this is a very kind of personal attack on law enforcement. And inherent in this is, I think, that kind of something that I think is inherent to the judicial system and those that work within it is this kind of outlook, kind of simplistic, uh, lax nuance kind of understanding of crime and society, which in itself is an understandable kind of construction but in this context, you really see it start to get out of control quickly and start to become a little bit racialized. For example, you have a story that starts to spread amongst these correction officers that inside the prisoners have strapped the hostages to gasoline-soaked mattresses, and they're going to set them on fire at any moment, right? Which is absolutely absurd. Um, is not occurring at all within the yard. But this kind of leap from bad guys to hardened criminals to animals, savages. Uh, it just happens so easily and so smoothly. And I think that that is a key kind of part of why this is all about to go wrong, is this kind of mindset, this kind of racialized imagination of what's happening on the inside. Also, from the outside, uh, Nelson Rockefeller begins to put pressure on the prison officials to go ahead and retake the prison to end negotiations after about a three-day period and say, you know, enough's enough, right? It's time to go back. It's time to go in uh, and, and retake the prison, which is exactly what the police and the correction officers wanted to hear, right? Because again, their view is that justice has been subverted and that we must go in and show force uh, and take revenge and, and give justice to these criminals. So with that mindset, armed with that mindset, the decisions that the police officials have to make is, okay, who is going to, to be doing this retaking, or I guess the prison officials, who it falls on to? Who's going to do the retaking? Who's going to go in there with force and retake the prison and put down this uprising? And there's a couple decisions you can make. Uh, you can send in the corrections officers and the police officers, who, as I just mentioned, have a very kind of personal and emotional stake. But you also have the National Guard there, who have a little bit more training in this, and could have handled it probably a little bit more professionally. But instead, again, justice must be done. The task 
of retaking is given to the corrections officers uh, and the New York State Police. Mainly the New York State Police. I want to be clear here. Mainly the New York State Police, but uh, corrections officers kind of join in semi-officially, unofficially. Uh, and the entire process of the retaking, and again, the book does a really good job of showing that there's really not a great plan here. Um, they're going to drop uh, tear gas on the prisoners to incapacitate them, and then there's just going to kind of be a rush in to kind of retake the ground, uh, and everyone's going to be armed, and so they hand out rifles and shotguns. So all of the police officers have rifles and shotguns um, to kind of retake the prison. A lot of these uh, officers bring weapons from home. Um, there's almost this kind of sense, right, like I'm going to join in on this kind of almost crusade against the bad guys. Uh, so they bring their guns from home, and they're you know ready and rearing to go. But really lacking in the plan is any way to get the hostages out in a safe manner. And so what ends up happening is once the gas is dropped, the tear gas, all the police officers go in and just start shooting. I mean, it's really what happens. Uh, my understanding from the book is they just start shooting um, really indiscriminately, just into the mass of prisoners. Again, remember, these prisoners are not armed. Um, they only have some blunt objects that they've maybe picked up from the yard, like a football helmet or maybe the leg of a chair or something. I mean, but there's not, um, they're not armed in any uh, real sense in terms of guns or, or blades. Uh, and so they just kind of go in, uh, guns blazing like this, um, even the National Guard, a lot of National Guardsmen testify, they just kind of looked on in horror that this was happening. And what really happens is it kind of disintegrates very quickly into a racial pogrom. I mean, they're just running around, uh, really not uh, any control, not any command to this, not any structure to this, shooting indiscriminately. And what ends up happening, 29 prisoners are killed, shot dead, but also... Nine hostages were also shot by their uh, supposed uh, saviors, right? The men that were going in to try and release them and save them. Um, all nine of them are killed by gunshots uh, from fellow police officers. So the entire execution of this retaking uh, is really bad. I don't want to read from this uh, too much, read from the book, but there's, there's one paragraph that I think gives a good sense of what's happening here because I think my descriptions pale in comparison to Heather Ann Thompson's depictions in the book. So to get a sense of what's happening in this yard and this just uncontrolled violence and how there is no, this isn't a two-way street of combat. I mean, this is, the, the prisoners are completely taken unaware that this was happening and uh, there is no defense. Uh, They're just really running for their lives. As cruel as these events were, it was the act of cold-blooded killing and attempted killing that made the scene especially terrifying. One prisoner watched in disbelief as two troopers aimed their guns at a man trying to take cover in a trench. The troopers instructed the man to climb out of the hole with his hands on his head, which he did. Then, he was shot in the chest by the trooper who had told him to keep his hands on his head. Another prisoner, who had been shot in the abdomen and in the leg, was ordered to get up and walk, which he was unable to do. The trooper then shot him in the head with a handgun. Trooper Gerard Smith watched his fellow officers storm through the tent city and happen upon foxholes that prisoners were trying to hide in, and then witnessed one of those troopers as he just stuck the rifle into the hole and pulled the trigger. 
So you have these, these again, almost execution-style killings. And again, just absolute chaos. There's no order to this. Um, again, completely kind of one-sided. The hostages fared little better. When correction officer Dean Wright huddled into the smallest ball he could make, suddenly felt somebody reach down and turn him over, he was relieved, thinking he was finally being rescued. Then he panicked. As he looked up, he found himself staring into the barrel of a 12-gauge shotgun in the hands of a New York State trooper who looked like he was about to pull the trigger. Had somebody else not yelled, he's one of ours, he's one of ours, just then, he realized with sickening clarity he would have been dead. After being shot in the back, guard Robert Curtis also felt the fear of imminent death when a trooper kept knocking him over every time he tried to sit up. He shouted as loudly as he could that he was an officer, but still had to beg the trooper not to shoot him. Hostage G.B. Smith might have also been shot dead had it not been for fellow hostage John Stockholm. As Stockholm remembered, G.B. started to get out of the pile and a trooper tried to level his gun at him until I said, he's one of ours. Afterwards, the prisoners uh, were subject to all kinds of reprisals in which the guards, while leading them back to the, the prisoners back to their cells, uh, forced them to strip naked, forced them to crawl through the mud, forced them to run gauntlets in which the guards would beat on them. Again, all kind of thought of as revenge uh, amongst very many other kind of detailed stories of, of torture that take place afterwards that, again, I would really um, suggest you, you, you read the book. Uh, I won't go into them in details here completely. Uh, one that stuck out is one prisoner was um, stabbed repeatedly with a screwdriver uh, and, and just so many other things, uh, sleep deprivation, I mean, you name it. Uh, the reprisals were long, uh, the revenge um, extreme in the, in the cases afterwards. There was also a large amount of medical need afterwards. Uh, I didn't mention this, but in the retaking, the bullets used in the rifles were uh, unjacketed dum-dum rounds, which are uh, essentially rounds that explode on impact and had, were banned by the Geneva Convention, but were used in the retaking of Attica, which again kind of speaks to the kindest word you could use is oversight, at least in regards to if you actually were trying to get the hostages out in a, in alive. But the main thing the state's focused with afterwards is damage control. There are leaders that realize pretty quickly into this that the what this is going to become is very bad. And so there is an attempt to immediately kind of try and cover up the story a little bit of what had happened. Um, and what becomes a central untruth uh, of, of what comes out of Attica in the early hours of the retaking is this idea that the prisoners killed the hostages. And specifically, the story that starts to circulate amongst police officers and correction officers, and officially uh, it becomes the official story from the prison, is that the prisoners sliced the throats of the dead hostages, and in one case, castrated a corrections officer and stuck his genitals in his mouth. Now, none of this occurred. Did not occur on any level, anywhere in the prison, at any time. It was complete fabrication. Again, I think getting back to that racial imagination run wild. Uh, again, that the... the, the the slippery slope from bad guys to animals and savages, especially with black prisoners, uh, is a very smooth and easy transition and one that is filled with untruth. 
And this is a case of that untruth. And so the official story given to the media, the one that all the United States heard is this savage criminal slicing the throats of their hostages and in one case is uh, castrating their hostage. But again, this did not happen. Uh, All of the hostages died because of gunshot wounds from the police officers that retook the prison. In fact, the medical examiner uh, was one of the first to kind of come out and correct the story and say, look, no, what happened here was these, these, these men were killed by gunshots. But even then, right, to kind of talk about just the cultural mentality that happens, I think, in any institution, but especially this, the justice system, is the, the response is not, oh, okay, we made a mistake. You're right. This is how this happened. It was immediately an attempt, and even Nelson Rockefeller and his staff participated in this, an attempt to discredit the doctor, right? Oh, this just must be some hippie doctor, right, who's not on our side, who's trying to lie and say that that these men died from gunshot wounds. Um, which, again, doesn't really need to be said, but the, the, the doctor was a Republican, kind of conservative-leaning guy. He was in no way... Um, part of, you know, some hippie, hippie doctor, uh, that, that's not an apt description of him at all. But again, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, this is, you get again, the kind of cultural mentality uh, of this, and it starts to kind of play out in, in, in this very distinct way. So even though you had uh, not only the medical examiner saying, look, these men died from gunshot wounds, you also had National Guardsmen who witnessed the entire thing, who were very willing to testify, uh, saying, you know, what they had seen. So you had plenty of evidence that this entire thing was botched from the beginning and that the state needed to be held responsible for what had occurred at Attica. The prosecutor's office was concerned really only with prosecuting the prisoners for what had happened at Attica. But of course there wasn't a lot of evidence, right? You have hundreds, uh, over a thousand prisoners. What evidence do you have of which one, uh, you know, beat the corrections officer? How do you hold this whole group responsible? Uh, it becomes very hard for the prosecutor's office to kind of make anything stick. When they do pick out individuals to bring charges against, uh, usually their, their eyewitnesses are police officers or corrections officers who really never were able to keep their stories straight. And so a lot of these prosecutions in, in the aftermath, uh, you know, 70s, 1970s, you see these legal cases kind of go off one after the other. Uh, only with very few exceptions, the, the, the DA is not able to get any of these charges to kind of stick to the prisoners. But while the focus is so hardcore on bringing justice to the prisoners, um, they really try to sweep under the rug the wrongdoings of the state. And it's not until really kind of later, as prisoners continue to kind of put pressure on on the state, um, uh, this kind of horrifying reality of Attica kind of starts to come out. Um, and I think, again, the whole second half of the book is really about these legal cases. And I think she's really well done, really detailed and researched, um, and really worth the read. But I kind of wanted to, to, to finish off with, with one, one last thing. So you kind of have this, this Attica, and it becomes really kind of a shorthand, um, depending on, on your perspective, for either you know, the prison industrial complex or 
you know, the savageness of criminals, right? If all you heard was the kind of narrative about the throat slitting. But really, if you fast forward in the 1990s, by the 1990s, the prisoners are able to start to get some traction on civil cases uh, to try and get some kind of monetary restitution for what occurred at Attica and the gross negligence of the state in the retaking. And in the year 2000, they are awarded, the prisoners, $12 million, right? Which decades after it happened, you know, that was kind of a hollow victory in many respects. But again, this gets back to the brilliance of the book, is that what it shows is, so these prisoners get this, this money. And again, this is where she always makes sure that she's getting the different perspectives. She pivots back for the last section of the book to the corrections officers, their families, the widows and the children of the hostages that died. And they are absolutely enraged that the prisoners received money, that the prisoners received you know, restitution. And they're absolutely enraged for all the ways that you would kind of predict. Um, one of the, one of the, one of, I'll, I'll do a reading, one last reading from the book in a second. But one of the, the women that she um, spotlights is a daughter of a corrections officer who died. And her understanding of Attica was really kind of that first initial understanding of the kind of the throats were slid or, you know, the criminals did all of the, all of the bad things. Um, you know, that was the narrative that she understood. But she's able to kind of learn that, no, there's more to it than that. Um, and, I, and I wanted to read to it read to you uh, to that effect. Okay, so the context of this is that the families of the, the hostages that died here, again, year 2000, they hear that the $12 million award to the prisoners has been issued. And essentially what happens, I don't remember specifically, but I think there's a radio show in the town of Attica that's discussing this, and they have a session in which the families of the hostages can come to a local cafe and kind of discuss what happened. And so they all kind of come to kind of vent at their anger over what happened with the prisoners. And while there, one of the people that's going to speak at this is a man by the name of Michael Smith, who was one of the hostages. He was a corrections officer who was one of the hostages. And so that day, start the reading, that day at the Signature Cafe was life-altering for many there. When Christine Schrader, the middle daughter of a slain correction officer, William Quinn, had heard that the prisoners had been awarded money, she was so outraged, outraged and betrayed by our judicial system, that she had decided to come to the cafe just to vent. Once there, though, Christine was overwhelmed with emotion of a different sort. For the first time in my life, I got to meet some of these other families who had also suffered through this horrific event. It was like a support group, only 30 years too late. As the mayor, hostages, troopers, and family members spoke, I could not help but cry. Christine's mother, Nancy, and her sister, Dee Miller, attended too, albeit reluctantly. Miller was also furious that prisoners had gotten money from the state, and frankly, was so mad she wasn't sure she wanted to hear any more about it. Ultimately, she decided to go to the cafe only because, once there, she might learn more. She wished someone could make them give the money to us since they took our dad's lives. Most of the folks assembled at the Signature Cafe knew precious little about what had actually happened in D-Yard after the riot, and they had uncritically accepted the state's version of the retaking and rehousing. D. Miller was one of those. 
As she later mused, I knew nothing about Attica. And so, when Mike Smith finally got up to speak, to much eye-rolling and sighing in the group, she found her head spinning. She realized that nothing was as she had thought it to be. Mike Smith told the group that Attica had needed reforms back in 71, and that the state had cared so little about the prisoners and about its own employees that it had gone in with guns blazing. The state had known that people would die, Smith said, and it had thereafter abandoned the surviving employees as well as the widows and kids of those who had been killed by state police gunfire. As D. Miller listened to Mike Smith recount his nightmare of the day of the retaking and of all he had endured since due to his wounds, tears began rolling down her face. She suddenly saw that the prisoners and corrections officers had both been sacrificed by the state, and thus they weren't each other's enemies. I think that's the brilliance of the book, is that you really come out of it on the other end. Again, I went in knowing nothing. But you come out the other end of the book, and you really get a sense of how this system, this justice system, with all of its kind of internal logics and ways of reasoning, what the effect of that is, is to really kind of chew people up and spit them out, whether it's the prisoners or the families. It's hard not to be angry to see the way that uh, the state treated the families afterwards, essentially kind of tricking them into signing paperwork uh, that they would not be able to sue later, while also promising essentially paltry support for the widows of these men. Right? So you can kind of see, again, this, this institutional framework um, that I think we would be naive to say has really changed all that much, that pits these people against each other, prisoners, corrections officers, good guys, bad guys. Um, and I think really kind of overstates that separation um, and that these men are really just kind of being chewed up and spit out by the system. And I think that is the brilliance of Heather Ann Thompson's Blood in the Water. So I really suggest you pick this book up. Um, you know, I think it's going to be coming out in paperback in March of next year, if I remember correctly. Uh, so if you want to wait for that, but really this is definitely one I think you should get. I think even though it focuses on something so specific, it's really something that can be telling um, to just kind of the mindsets and to kind of the way we view the criminal justice system and the kind of logics within the system and just all of its impact. I just think the work is absolutely brilliant in the way it all comes together. So that's it for me. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Hopefully you enjoyed the book review. Uh, we're going to probably try to do this again, maybe be a little bit shorter next time, but this is, this, this is a good book. Had a lot to talk about. Uh, so please join in on the discussion on Facebook, also on Twitter at FBright Project, and we hope to hear from you. Thank you.